Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Again, good morning. Uh, those of you who were on Glendon time and came in late, it's good to see you <laughs> made it this morning as well too. So grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey shares this story. Uh, he says, during a British conference on comparative religions, uh, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They, they began eliminating some possibilities. Incarnation, for example, uh, so there are some other religions that have had different versions of a God appearing in human form. Uh, resurrection, and again, other, other religions have accounts of, of people rising from the dead. And the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And Lewis in his uh, probably, uh, <laughs> I picture him kind of as a grumpy old man, he said, what's this rumpus all about? <laughs> And he heard the reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's uniqueness among the other religions of the world. And Lewis very quickly responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And Lewis is, as usual, I think, on to something. Whether it's the, the Buddhist eightfold path or the, or the Hindu's cycle of reincarnation based on karma or the Muslim's adherence to the law or even the, the Roman Catholic idea of a works-based merit, each one of those religions tells that salvation must be earned. Yet God's love, his salvation, the promise of eternal life God's amazing grace comes to us without charge. It is something that we can in no way earn or merit, and it's nothing that we deserve. As we'll look at this morning, God's grace is a gift, and this gift is truly amazing. During Advent, we're looking at glad tidings in the book of Titus. Uh, last week, we were in chapter 1. This week, we're in chapter 2. And next week, we'll be in chapter 3, right? Uh, 1, 2, and 3. This morning's sermon text is all about God's amazing grace. If you haven't already, I invite you to find your Bibles, uh, Titus chapter 2. We'll be focusing on verses 11 through 14 this morning, and, and as I read, uh, notice that God's grace in our lives, attained for us through Jesus, informs us who we are and how we are now as redeemed children of God, how we ought to live. Would you join me in standing this morning as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, reading in the name of Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us 
from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, uh, the amazing grace in our lives. Thank you for sending us your Son in this Advent season as we uh, look back on the first coming and we look forward to the second coming. We pray that you would be preparing our own hearts for that second coming. And uh, Lord, we again ask today that as we gather together and we look at your word, that you would block out all the distractions of our mind that, that are so, uh, so tempting to just take us away from what you have in your word today, Lord. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of every present heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to try to keep things simple this morning, so even though I don't have a PowerPoint outline on the screen, confirmation students, I'm sorry. This is going to be kind of easy here. Two-point sermon. Uh, first, let's, let's look at the appearance of grace, the appearance of, of grace. Again, listen to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God appeared. And that word that we translate appeared is the, is the Greek word epiphiano, and we get the English word epiphany from it. And when we think of epiphany, we think of a, of a sudden revelation, right? The lights coming on as you're learning to solve a, a complex math problem. Uh, the way to navigate a tricky family situation suddenly makes itself clear. The solution to a, a dilemma at work suddenly dawns on you. God's grace has epiphanied on us. And I'm not sure if I can make epiphany a word, but I'm going to roll with it this morning. God's grace epiphanied, appeared, shed its light on us. In Titus 1 last week, we looked at the promise of God, eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we looked at that as it manifested itself. It made itself known to us. That word uh, manifest there means to bring something to light. God's promise of eternal life was brought to light through the gospel. In a, in a similar manner, God's grace, epiphanied, Paul would say, through the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know of God's grace because it was revealed, it was brought to light in and through Jesus and this grace, Paul says, is available for all. God's grace is available for all, bringing salvation, he says, for all people. There are no prerequisites for receiving God's grace. There are no boxes to check before God says, okay, now you're good enough, I'll give you salvation. God's grace is freely available for all. God's grace is available indiscriminately. It isn't limited to a certain people group who live in a certain area. It isn't limited to people who have a certain social status or are a member of a certain political party or religious party. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all. And now at the same time, it's important to mention that as Paul says, the salvation is available for all. He isn't expounding some sort of universalism. Paul knows the reality that some people will miss out 
on the salvation of Jesus Christ. There is, as he puts it in Romans chapter 2, wrath and fury for all those who do not repent and turn to Christ. Uh, For those who have not received this gracious gift of salvation, there is a fearful expectation of judgment. And Jesus himself talked about this judgment on unbelief quite often. We read from Matthew chapter 25 earlier, the final judgment. And in that passage, the reality of hell, the reality of eternal punishment looms large for the unrighteous and the unrepentant. And it's because of this reality of eternal punishment that Jesus had to come. Our sin separates us from God. His holiness, his perfection, his righteousness cannot dwell with sin. Once God walked with man, but then sin came and we were separated, removed from the Garden of Eden, removed from the presence of the Lord, separated from him. Your sin is a stain upon your heart that cannot be removed or washed away by your own efforts. Uh, That stain separates you from your creator. And your sin, the Bible says, earns you death, eternal death and separation from the Lord God. Yet our triune God was not content to let his creation languish and to face this death alone. Jesus came bringing us God's salvation. He lived that perfect sinless life. He gave his life as a substitute for you. He died on the cross in your place and on your behalf to bring you to God. He became sin for you, exchanging his perfect righteousness for your sin. His blood washes away the stain of your sin. And the really wonderful news is that this salvation of God is freely available, again, for all. There are no requirements for attaining it, no standard of perfection that we need to measure up to. Salvation is a gracious gift that's been received by faith. It isn't earned as a reward. It isn't given out as a bonus for your good behavior. That's what's so amazing about grace Grace is what distinguishes Christianity among all the other religions. Again, all other belief systems are systems in which you have to earn your salvation, be good enough to attain it. But the reality of Scripture is that salvation comes to us as we are and cleanses us and purifies us and saves us. God's grace is truly amazing. And now that that God's amazing grace has appeared, what is its result? In verses 12 through 14, Paul tells us the effect of grace. Look again at the effect of God's grace as it has in our lives and, and as it changes us. Verses 12 through 15, Paul says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's amazing grace affects us, Paul says. It changes us. Once we have been redeemed by Christ, we are no longer the same. God's grace rewires us. 
And it does so in a couple of different ways. It, it trains us and it helps us to wait. Training us. And training is an ongoing process, isn't it? It's not just a one and done event. Uh, football players train not just once but time and time again to, to, for, to hone their craft, learning the coach's playbook, learning how to execute a play that's called. Soldiers undergo constant training both physically and mentally to equip them for the rigors of their job. And most jobs have some sort of continuing education piece uh, that goes along with it, right? Nurses, teachers, pastors, uh, electricians, right? You all have continuing education, training. There's always something new to learn and to be reminded of. God's word is what trains believers, We read in verse 12 that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Part of this training then involves learning to say no to certain things, saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is simply the thoughts and behaviors that are contrary to the word of God, to God's will as it's revealed in his word. Ungodliness includes things like violation of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before the Lord God. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not kill, steal, bear false witness, covet, so on and so forth. Ungodliness also includes things like Jesus' prohibitions in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, including prohibitions against anger and lust. But the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount aren't the only places in the Word of God where you find His law, where it's expounded, is found all throughout. And ungodliness is any behavior that, or, or thoughts that are, that are contrary to His will. Worldly passions then are, are the lusts, are the cravings, the indulgences, the desires of our sinful flesh that we need to be constantly putting to death. Worldly passions are things that the world, things that society and culture tells us that it's okay to embrace, even if God's word says we shouldn't. The good news is, however, that that God's grace defeats these sinful tendencies in our lives. It trains us to say no to the sin that so easily entangles us. So not only are we to renounce to say no to certain things, Christians who have been bought and redeemed by Christ, now we ought to live lives of yes. Living no, or I'm sorry, saying no and living yes. Training us, Paul says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Being self-controlled means that you, believer, are master of your own thoughts and actions. They're not the, the servant of the evil one, but you have the power to rein in those faculties. Upright and godly living, they're, they're closely related ideas that have at their core an emphasis on being conformed to the image of God, to the image of Christ in all things, in our every thought, in our every word, in our every deed, and taking those things captive to Christ and to his word. This, this grace-inspired godly living, Paul says, is also a life that's dependent upon God and his grace. We aren't able to do this in our own strength. We constantly fail. Author uh, Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, Godliness is not a consequence of human resolution or willpower. 
Godliness is a relationship with God that results in a life honoring to God. Saying no and living yes. One of the most common criticisms of of Christians and Christianity today is that Christians are only against things, right? Uh, People can tend to see Christians as a bunch of fun-killing, legalistic moralists, right? Some of you might be old enough to remember when owning a deck of playing cards was akin to idolatry, But nowadays, Christians are seen as being against certain cultural movements and ideas that are more significant than a deck of playing cards, against abortion, against the LGBTQ movement, against critical race theory, against, and fill in the blank, right? And yes, it is good and it is right to take a stand on ideas and movements that are contrary to God's will as revealed in his word. Uh, We need to do that. Uh, But we also need to be for certain things as well too, right? Saying no is good, but we also need to be living that yes. Christians, we need to set the example in speech and in conduct, It doesn't help our our Christian witness on the job site or in the classroom if you've got the foulest mouth of everybody else. If you can't control your own passions and your own lusts within yourself, it makes it hypocritical to tell others, don't do that. We also need to do a better job of presenting what we are for, what we, what we encourage. Right? We need to do a better job of articulating the value of life from every age and every stage. We need to do a better job conveying a healthy picture of marriage and the family. We need to work hard at presenting a better ethic regarding race that's rooted in creation. We need to do a better job of, of taking care of the sick and the homeless and the elderly, not just talk but in word and truth. And we do this first and foremost, I I believe, by by living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We also need to train ourselves by by listening to educated and articulate Christians who who have thought through these issues, not just the, the talking points on your favorite cable news channel. What are we for God's grace trains us as we say no and as we live yes. And not only does God's amazing grace train us to say no and to live yes, but God's grace inspires us to wait for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our God and our Lord. Waiting, waiting. It seems we are always waiting, right? According to a Timex survey, Americans wait on average 20 minutes a day for the bus or the train, 32 minutes whenever they visit a doctor, and 28 minutes waiting in security lines whenever they travel. We also will wait 21 minutes for a significant other to get ready to go out for a date on the, in the evening. Time magazine says that most Americans will spend 13 hours annually waiting on hold for customer service. And I think that's just one phone call, <laughs> right? The, the average American uh, commuter will spend anywhere from 38 to 44 hours each year waiting in traffic, according to The Atlantic, and that's not counting the red lights. Each year, we spend about 60 hours waiting for red lights, If you add that up over the course of your lifetime, you will spend four to five months 
sitting behind red lights just waiting. And I live in Moorhead, and I don't want to think of the time that I've even spent behind trains, right? Those are even longer. We, we become impatient quickly, don't we? You know, the, I, I've been waiting here for five minutes. When will the doctor see me, right? Uh, my car will be done next week. <laughs> how much food did they order through that drive through window? Um, how long until this next light turns green? Netflix buffered for like three seconds, and I had to wait, <laughs> I've said all of those things to myself this week. I think we ought to get better at waiting. There's precious time spent waiting, isn't there? And I'd encourage you to find better ways to use it than being angry. As you're waiting, read scripture. Use a Bible app on your phone to, to read Scripture or to memorize Scripture. Memorize the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed in the time that you're waiting. Spend those seconds behind the wheel at a red light praying for one another. You know, here's, here's an idea. Uh, keep a copy of the church directory that we just got, right? Keep a copy of the church directory in your car. Then at each red light that you come to, pray for another person in that list. Uh, think of all the, the time that you could spend praying and not complaining about this red light. <laughs> and then when you got to church, you could say, hey, Bruce and Sheila, I was in the S's and I stopped at your red, at a red light today and I prayed for you guys. It might just be, have, have been 30 seconds, but it's 30 seconds more that you could spend in prayer. That's a great way to spend some time waiting. <laughs> and, and in Titus chapter 2, what or whom are we waiting for? It's not red lights, praise the Lord. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the appearance of Jesus. This is the second time in these few, two, or few short verses that Paul uses the word appearing or epiphiano. The first time, again, was in verse 11, and it referred to the first advent, the first coming of Jesus when he came to live a perfect sinless life and to give himself as the ransom for us, dying in our place and on our behalf. Here in verse 13, Paul's use of the word epiphiano refers to the, the second advent, the second coming, when he returns from heaven in glory to take us to be with him where he is and when he finally sets up his forever kingdom and finally and ultimately to destroy the works of the devil. And we wait longingly, eagerly for that day. His return, his coming again is our blessed hope. And one day, I pray soon, Jesus will return and will we'll make our hope a reality. Our faith will become sight. And to that we pray, amen, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Did, did you notice the two titles that Paul gave to Jesus in verse 13? Paul addressed Jesus as our great God and Savior. These terms, God and Savior, are not referring to two separate and distinct persons. Jesus is, Paul says, both our God and our Savior. Another common critique leveled at Christians is that Jesus, nor the apostles, never said that Jesus was God. Uh, the skeptic will, will say that that title or that designation was, was, was given to Jesus by the early church in order to gain validity as a religion. In truth, however, Jesus did make such claims, claims of divinity, claims of being God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And he said, before Abraham was I am. He took the divine name and applied it to himself. 
And these claims were recognized by the original audience for what they were. They, they, they were claims of divinity, being equal with God, being God. And the, the original audience, they heard that and they picked up stones in order to throw at Jesus because if those claims were not true, true Jesus was a blasphemer and was condemned to die on the spot right there. Jesus claimed to be God, and the audience knew it. Um, Thomas, one of the, the disciples, right, is probably best known for his doubt. Uh, he doubted Jesus' resurrection. He said, unless I see, the, in, my, uh, unless I see in his hands the, the marks of the nail and put my uh, hand into his side, I will never believe. We call him Doubting Thomas because of that. But Thomas also made one of the greatest declarations of faith. Once he saw the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he declared, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct Thomas on that point. Doubting, doubting Thomas believed that Jesus was God. And Paul also knew that Jesus was God. Titus 2.13 is one of those prime examples. Jesus is both our God and our Savior. In Romans 5.9, uh, Paul says that Christ is God of all and he's blessed forever. In 2 Thessalonians 1:12 Paul writes again that the grace of our Lord and of uh, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter who walked with Jesus who walked on water made that same confession in 2 Peter 1:1 1, 1, he said our God and savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both God and savior. And as we wait for his second appearing, Paul says, uh, he gives us some final instructions as, as how we ought to live our lives. Uh, our, our God and Savior gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. We live, Paul says, as redeemed sinners. Redeemed sinners. We know that until Christ's uh, epiphiano, his second coming, we, we, we still continue to struggle against sin, right? Against ungodliness, against worldly passions. Until then, we are, we are still plagued by fear and doubt and anger and lust and greed and idolatry and all manner of nagging sins. But we also know that, that in the meantime, we have been redeemed. We have been bought back from slavery to sin by the blood of Christ. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are justified. That means we are declared right in God's sight because of Christ Jesus. And, and all of our life is stuck in this tension, in this dichotomy. On the one hand, we have been redeemed by Christ and are no longer slaves to sin. But yet, on the other hand, we still struggle with sin. Does anybody else in the room feel that tension, or is it just me? I feel that all day, right? Paul said, the good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil that I do not want to do, that I do, right? Uh, Martin Luther had a phrase for this, and I'm pretty sure I mentioned it before uh, from the pulpit. He said, simul justus et peccator. <laughs> it's a Latin term. Uh, it means simultaneously at the same time, uh, simultaneously justified and a sinner. At the same time, believer, you are both justified, which means that you have been declared to be free from your guilt and your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers you. And while being justified, believer, you are also a sinner because you have a sin nature that still clings to you, as Luther said, like a stubborn recalcitrant donkey. 
and you sin daily in thought, in word, and in deed. And our lives are a continual cycle of sin and repentance, of sin and repentance, of sinning less and repenting more. Simul justus et peccator. We need both God's law in our lives and his gospel. His law points out our sin. The gospel reassures us that in Jesus Christ our sins have been dealt with. We are, in fact, redeemed sinners. We are also purified treasures. Jesus Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Purified relates to this concept of the the continual removal of sin from our lives. Yes, we have been made new in Christ, but the old uh, still needs to go. And the Lord Jesus Christ, by his grace, is, is, is daily purifying us, washing us clean through his word, removing us from us every bit of evil that, that does not resemble himself and his holiness and his goodness. He purifies us. And then notice, notice he purifies us as a people for his own possession. This language refers back to the Old Testament designation of the Lord God of his own people, Israel. This morning we read in our scripture lesson the first part of Exodus 19. There the Lord God calls his people his treasured possession. And when we think of treasure, we think of gold, we think of of maps, we think of X marks the spot. And we're right. A treasure is valuable. A treasure is something you search for, something you hunt for, something that you might be even willing to die in search of. And once you have it, you don't give it away for nothing. You, you brother and sister in Jesus Christ, you are God's treasured possession. Jesus Christ gave his life for you. And he isn't going to give you away for nothing. And finally, Paul says that we redeemed sinners who are the treasured possession of Jesus Christ are zealous for good works. Uh, To be zealous is to be excited about something. Uh, Many of you are are zealous for your sports team, whether it's a sports team you play on or a sports team that you watch. Uh, At the risk of then oversimplifying things, good good works are simply the, the good, godly things that we do. Helping a neighbor, loving our brother, honoring our father and mother, feeding the poor, good things all, right? Good works are not the cause of or the basis of our salvation. I was uh, searching radio stations this week, probably at a red light, and it stopped on the Catholic radio station. <laughs> and the host was trying to make the point that our works, uh, the good, the things we do, the kindness, the love that we show, all of those things, those are what saves us. This is probably the main difference, by the way, between the Roman Catholic Church and the rest of Protestants. Uh, All throughout Scripture, we read that our good works cannot bring us salvation. Yes, we are commanded to do them as redeemed sinners and purified treasures, but those good works can never save us. Instead, we do good works because we have been saved, because we have been justified, because we have been created in Christ Jesus to do those good works, and we should do them. And as we wait for the return, the epiphiano of our God and Savior, he asks us to be his hands and his feet, giving a cup of, of cold water to somebody in his name, bearing with one another in love, forgiving one another, uh, living lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and all of the rest. Brothers and sisters, we are redeemed sinners and purified treasure to be zealous for good works.
Amen. We'll conclude this morning with the hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, This is probably one of the most popular and and beloved hymns of all time, and it's not just (laughs) a funeral hymn, is it? (laughs) It's a hymn that we can sing all the time. And uh, it was written right by by John Newton, who had a a checkered past. He was the captain of a slave ship, vocally opposed to the notion of God. However, uh, grace got a hold of his heart, and he was changed. And uh, uh, John Newton recognized that and penned this hymn.